1: from the nation magazine this is start making sense political talk without the boring parts i'm john weiner today we'll talk of course about the impeachment trial in the senate and we'll also speak with historian andrew basevich about how america squandered its cold war victory and where trump fits into the history of the u.s since the collapse of the USSR. And we'll also talk about climate change, as seen from the perspective of the Pentagon. Trump may deny that the world is getting warmer fast, but the Pentagon has been preparing for that for several years now. Michael Clare will report. But first, maybe you heard the news on Tuesday, the Senate trial of Donald Trump began to determine whether he should be convicted of abuse of power and removed from office. It's only the third time in history it's ever happened, and the Republican majority in the Senate says in advance of the trial that they will acquit him. So what does it all mean, and what can the Democrats accomplish in the next two weeks? For comment and analysis, we turn, of course, to John Nichols. He's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and author of the book Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. John, welcome back.
2: John, it's good to be with you. I I think we may have reached the (laughs) Trumpocalypse. I think
1: so. Well, we need to start (laughs) by pointing out that we are taping this on Tuesday at midday at the hour that the Senate proceedings have just begun. Listeners later in the week will know a lot more than we know now, but we do know a couple of things. Fifty one percent of the public at the start of the Senate impeachment trial, is in favor of convicting Trump and, I emphasize, removing him from office. 51%, 45% are opposed to removing him from office. You have been arguing for Trump's impeachment for more than a year. Now that the trial in the Senate has begun, now that a majority of Americans favor removing him from office, let's talk for a minute about how we got here and what to make of what's happening now. Well, there's a lot to be said. And the only place where I'll differ with you, John, is you suggested that listeners
2: to this conversation may know more in two days Considering that this is Mitch McConnell's Senate, there's a chance they'll know less.
0: Excellent. Um,
2: McConnell, McConnell is really trying very, very hard to confuse the American people, to undermine the process, to delegitimize it in every way that he possibly can. And that is an effort to undo the number that you presented there. A clear majority of Americans think that this president should be impeached, he has been impeached, and that he should be removed, i.e. that the evidence is sufficient to merit his removal from office. Now, what we're going to see over the next few days, next few weeks, is a great struggle on the part of McConnell and Trump and those who are clearly mounting an effort to undo this to cast doubt on that that sentiment, to challenge it, to... Uh, again, delegitimize it, but they won't succeed. And at the end of the day, that is why impeachment has been already, and I think will be a success because impeachment is not necessarily a, a process where you expect everything to fall into place, right? That you expect the house to impeach. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes those of us who have advocated for impeachment in the past uh, have not seen the house act the second part does the senate remove sometimes it doesn't in fact it never has in american history but if we respect impeachment for what it is and that is the tool we were given to realize the promise that tom Paine made in common common sense let it be said of america that so far as we have monarchs the law is king right that we put the rule of law over the rule of man. We put the rule of law over monarchy or over the notion that a president might serve uh, without constraint for four years. When we use the impeachment power, however we use it, however far we get with it, we are reasserting that premise. And that's why I've advocated for the impeachment of Donald Trump from the first moments at which He acted in a kingly or monarchical way. That's why I continue to advocate now. And it is, I hope and believe, why the American people will watch this trial and despite what McConnell and others try to do, will conclude that Donald Trump was legitimately impeached and that if the Senate will not hold him to account in the way that they should, then the voters will have that opportunity. Personally, I love the fact that this impeachment trial is taking place in an election year, Yeah, because it's much harder to forget the reality that is being, that
1: is being put forward. Well, the Trump attorneys uh, have declared in their opening statement, the president did absolutely nothing wrong when he withheld military aid for Ukraine voted by Congress in an effort to pressure them to investigate a political rival. And the Republicans in the Senate seem to be virtually unanimously adopting that line. But they are also not going to present any evidence of his innocence of the charges. That seems like a strange way to argue for the innocence of an accused person. And again, this hasn't gone over well with the public. That same CNN poll over the last few days asked, should the Trump impeachment trial include new witnesses? 69% of Americans said yes. Only 26% said no. So the Mitch McConnell White House strategy of denying everything and not presenting any evidence doesn't seem to be very popular in America right now.
2: Now, I think, you know, sort of the challenge here is that it's referred to as a trial, John.
1: Yeah. You know, and
2: and people kind of understand the basic concept of it. You know, you have a trial and a case is made that someone committed wrongs, in this case, high crimes and misdemeanors, abusing their office, etc. Then the defense challenges that charge. They challenge that complaint. That's what we expect, right? That's how it works. Now, this is not a normal trial. It's a, This is obviously a political action. This is a constitutionally defined trial that operates in somewhat different ways. But still, the American people get the basic premise of it. So what's going on here? This is the heart of the matter. Donald Trump is directing his own defense. He is ordering the hiring of probably the most bizarre defense team ever, right? I mean, you're literally, it's like some sort of scene from a bar in Star Wars, right? (laughs) Literally the the freaks of the law have arrived. And so he's putting his people forward. These are the people who will do what he says because uh, I think good lawyers, responsible conservative lawyers would say, (laughs) maybe we'd do it a little differently. Um, But secondly, he is dictating an approach here that mirrors his Twitter feed. Mm. And that is to say that the phone call was perfect. He never does anything wrong. He's always right. And so he cannot accept the idea that they actually could mount a defense. And look, I'm a critic of Trump. I want Trump to be removed from office. Say that right up front. But do I think that the, Trump team could with with skilled lawyers, with a savvy approach, mount a defense, maybe not a defense that a defense that I would accept, but one that would be effective and maybe even convincing for some folks. Yes, I think that's possible. But Trump refuses to do that because for him, this is a you know, this is a theater he is in he is in this theater and he is demanding that every actor perform as he wants them to. Um, That ought to tell the American people two things. First off, they've looked at it and said, well, that doesn't make sense. And they overwhelmingly oppose oppose this approach. But it also ought to tell them a lot about what's wrong with Donald Trump. Donald Trump is so obsessed with doing things his own way that he can't even do well or right for himself.
1: Well, the big question for the Democrats again, we are speaking at the very beginning of the proceedings, is that since the Republicans have already announced they're going to vote to acquit, what can the Democrats hope to achieve given that inevitable outcome? What can the Democrats, what should the Democrats be trying to do over the next two weeks?
2: They should hope to achieve everything. They should use this opportunity to put Donald Trump on trial to get as much information and as much grounding in the American experiment into the record and into the public discourse as possible. They should use every opportunity to repeat and extend the evidence of wrongdoing by the president. And they should use this as a masterclass in the rule of law in the application of the Constitution, in the concept that presidents are not kings, that they can be checked and balanced. This is this should be seen as a great educational and political opportunity. And it should be seized with, you know, relish, not with apologies, not with, you know, some sort of desire to get it done with. And one should always hold out the Mr. Smith goes to Washington opportunity or possibility. And that is that, you know, when it seems absolutely impossible, right, where there could be no way that, that it could possibly work, you still make the stand. In this case, you do the serious, deep, smart approach to the trial on the hope that maybe, just maybe even in these times there is, some sort of rising up on the part of the American people that would cause at least a few Republican senators to, to have pangs of conscience. Remember if when that final vote comes, you get to 51 senators, all the Democrats, the two independents, four Republicans, let's say four or five voting for removal of the president, that will be a victory and that will, be understood not just in this moment, but historically, as a signal that despite all of Mitch McConnell's machinations, the the weight of the evidence against Trump was so overwhelming that you got a majority of senators—not the necessary number to remove, but a majority to say he should be removed. So that's what you hold out for. That's what you go for. And and I think it's hard. And look, I, I'm not going to. I'm not naive about this and not unrealistic about it, but boy, given the opportunity to put Donald Trump on trial, take it.
1: John Nichols, always great to have you on the show. Thanks so much. It's been an
2: immense pleasure, John.
1: How America squandered its Cold War victory that's the topic Andrew Basevich takes up in his new book, The Age of Illusions. He's Professor Emeritus of History and International Relations at Boston University and president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He's a graduate of both West Point and Princeton. He served in the Army for 23 years. He's the author of many books. He's written for the New York Times, the London Review of Books, Tom Dispatch, and The Nation. Andrew Bacevich, welcome back.
3: Oh, thanks for having me.
1: Well, the opening of your new book, The Age of Illusions, is wonderful. It's a quote. Without the Cold War, what's the point of being an American? Tell us about that quote and where you found it. It's from a,
3: from a novel by John Updike, who wrote uh, several novels uh, centered on Harry Rabbit Angstrom, uh, kind of an American everyman of the Cold War era. This particular book appeared as it became as it was becoming apparent that the Cold War was coming to an end. And Harry is reflecting a rabbit is reflecting on the implications. and that's that's the conclusion he comes to that absent the Cold War, there is no easy answer to the question, you know what what's the point of being an American?
1: And you have a second great quote in your introduction that's not from John Updike. That quote is, We are going to do a terrible thing to you. We are going to deprive you of an enemy. Tell us about that quote.
3: Well, that's uh, attributed to a senior Soviet official, uh, talking to a senior American official, stemmed from uh, an awareness on the other side uh, that we had become dependent upon the Cold War, we the United States, we Americans, as an organizing principle uh, as a source of answers to basic questions. What are we all about? Well, we are all about waging the Cold War, because waging the Cold War is defending freedom and standing in opposition to totalitarianism. Waging the Cold War means siding with the God-fearing against the Godless, uh, And at least that Soviet official appreciated that, absent the Cold War, we might find ourselves without a compass. And I think that actually turned out to be the case. When the Cold War ended, a moment that produced extraordinary uh, euphoria, it, it opened the path, opened the door to a bunch of dumb ideas. Uh, and the point of my book is to argue that embracing those dumb ideas as a basis for policy led us let us down the path that culminated in the election of Donald Trump in 2016.
1: So let's talk briefly about what might have happened at the end of the Cold War. What could have happened? What should have happened?
3: Well, I mean, this is, uh, you know, this is hindsight by me. Uh, this is not what I was thinking and saying when I was watching television. I was stationed in Germany at the time, West, West Germany, watching on television, the celebration at the uh, Berlin Wall. As, as the wall came down, as East Germans uh, drove their little trabants into the West and uh, got their first taste of freedom, I mean, I myself uh, saw this as a moment-deserved celebration. We had won. Uh, we had prevailed in the struggle that had, in many respects, defined my life uh, as somebody who was born. Uh, just as the Cold War was beginning, well, that's the way it appeared to me back in 1989. My view today is substantially different, and today I would say that the proper response to the Cold, uh, to the ending of the Cold War, ought to have been some form of repentance. That is to say, rather than seeing it as a as a great triumph, a victory for our side, uh, we ought to have seen it as. A, a period of history that we had endured and had managed to escape, you know, with our skins intact. In other words, when when we think back on the Cold War today, what what, what stands out? Well, to me, what stands out is the nuclear arms race, uh, this genuinely mindless accumulation of thousands of nuclear weapons, our side and their side. Uh, the, the notion that one person, the president of the United States, should be empowered to, to launch those weapons on his own say-so, without you know a, a declaration of war, without consulting the Congress. Madness. That's a period when we unleashed the CIA on the world, uh, assassination attempts and, 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 and engineering coups with almost uniformly negative consequences. That's the period of time when we, uh, impelled by the logic of the Cold War, uh, you know, thrust ourselves into uh, Vietnam uh, for a war that uh, cost us, cost them, uh, and at least from the point of view of our side, didn't accomplish anything good. So, so the, the Cold War was a bad news story, uh, and therefore it seems to me today, again, I didn't think this then, reflecting on the Cold War should be a cause of mourning, in regret and, indeed, repentance.
1: You said that the period since the end of the Cold War has culminated with Donald Trump. I noticed the reviewer in the Washington Post, Beverly Gage, wrote that, quote, Trump himself gets off relatively easy in your book, close quote. I wonder if you agree with that.
3: Well, I don't, I, I don't think he gets off easy, but, uh, and this may well be what she was referring to, uh, my own personal perception of the, of, the, of the temperament of our times uh, is that we think it's all about Trump. You know, there, there are a considerable number of our fellow citizens who believe that Trump is a great president, uh, someone who is restoring the nation uh, to greatness, who take those claims uh, seriously. There is another segment of the population that loathes Trump, has loathed him since the day of his election. Considers him an abomination of a president and can't stop thinking or talking about Trump. Uh, my own view would be that Trump is a terrible president; uh, certainly uh, is unworthy of the office. But I see him as a consequence of problems, not as a cause of problems. So as you and I are speaking, you know the uh, the impeachment trial is underway in the United States Senate. Yes seems likely that he's going to be acquitted and continue to be president. But quite frankly, even if Trump is convicted uh, and is removed from office, I don't believe for a second that that is somehow going to heal the divisions in our country. I believe that those divisions came from genuine causes, a revolt against globalization, which had promised to create great wealth, but instead created enormous inequality a revolt against an emphasis on using military power as the key instrument of american foreign policy which has resulted in us being bogged down in endless wars which we can't even explain what they're about any longer we don't know why we're in afghanistan i think i think the election of donald trump was also a revolt against a a radical redefinition of the meaning of freedom uh, which tended to do away with anything remotely like duties and obligations, but simply expanded upon uh, privileges. And, and in my view, not not uh, not everyone will agree with this. Uh, that that radical redefinition of freedom has contributed uh, to many of the many of the dysfunctions that are evident in our society. Whether we're talking about drugs or we're talking about obesity. Well, we're talking about the domestic violence, and on and on. Ours is not a healthy society. Donald Trump did not create those problems. Uh, I think that those problems, at least indirectly, contributed to uh, Donald Trump becoming a uh, president.
1: And you conclude in your book, The Age of Illusions, that the post-Cold War era is coming to an end, and that the Era of American primacy in the world has now ended for good, you say, what do you mean?
3: Well, maybe maybe for good is uh, is, is too strong because i don 't pretend to know you know what what where, where we'll be in global politics a uh, hundred years from now. That said, American elites were persuaded that the end of the Cold War, the fact that it ended as it did, signaled that we were embarking upon a new era. Of American primacy, you know this this phrase. is very much of our part of our politics. This phrase, the American century, yeah. American century dates basically from World War II. Mm-hmm. I mean that 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 was the moment when not simply elites but many Americans came to the realization that you know we were on top, we're number one, we're the we're the biggest baddest country in the world. I think that the end of the Cold War affirmed that notion uh, and led people to believe that it wasn't simply an american century that we were living out but an american epoch you know this was going to be open-ended and yet what happened i think over the course of this post cold war era in other words the period from the fall of the berlin wall to the election of donald trump is that we experienced an accumulation of evidence suggesting that no, we really weren't number one. We weren't the biggest and baddest. Uh, you know, the, the problems were economic. The problems uh, occurred in the military sphere, uh, where it turned out we we could start wars, but really didn't know how to win them and end them. And I think they also occurred in the cultural sphere. So I don't I don't mean to be Mr. Doom and Gloom. I don't think that uh, you know we are we are headed down into the third tier of American, uh, of, of world nations, however that might be measured. Uh, but I think that the notion that the notion of primacy, that that was a bad idea when it was hatched uh, and has today become unsustainable.
1: So what do you think should replace the Cold War focus on, on us versus them, on freedom versus uh, tyranny? You conclude that we do have the kind of morally grounded cause that requires a great transformation and that could be the basis of a new kind of consensus, what is it?
3: Climate change. I mean, I, I am persuaded, and I, I must say, again, it's not that uh, 20 years ago I was saying this, but uh, I certainly have come to believe in recent years that that is the great common threat that we face, common not only to all Americans, uh, but common to all of us uh, who live on, on, on planet Earth. Uh, and therefore, there is an answer uh, to, the que- to Rabbit's question. You know, what, what is the point of being an American? The point of being an American is going to, to find ways in common, working together to, to diminish this threat in order to be able to preserve our, our freedoms. And I should emphasize that that's going to require changing our way of life. If indeed our way of life has, you know, we talk about freedom a lot, but it seems to me that the mainstays of the American way of life have been material consumption and expectations of of hypermobility. That when I see something and I want to buy it, being an American says I should be able to do so, even if I'm buying it on credit. When I decide I want to go someplace, I should be able to get in my car or buy a plane ticket uh, and go there. So material consumption mobility. Uh, Those are central, I think, to what has come to be the American way of life. Both of those are going to have to be curbed if indeed we're going to be able to make a serious effort at reducing the impact of of climate change. And that will require uh, a common effort. It's going to require uh, collaboration. And I think that in that imperative of, of collaboration, is the possibility of reuniting the country, coming to a richer conception of of citizenship, and those I think are, are necessary.
1: Andrew Basevich, his new book is "The Age of Illusions: How America Squandered Its Cold War Victory." Andy, thanks for this book and thanks for talking with us today.
3: Oh, thank you, John. I really appreciate it.
1: Now it's time to talk about the military and climate change. In the next decade, extreme storms, especially hurricanes, will be more frequent and more devastating because of rising sea levels in low-lying coastal areas where so many people live around the globe. The damage caused by such extreme weather is bound to increase exponentially and will overwhelm the abilities of civilian authorities to respond. The result ever-increasing calls on the military to provide relief and rescue services. The Pentagon has been thinking about that. For a report, we turn to Michael Clare. He's the nation's defense correspondent and also professor emeritus of peace and world security studies at Hampshire College and a senior visiting fellow at the Arms Control Association in Washington. His newest book has just been published, All Hell Breaking Loose, The Pentagon's Perspective on Climate Change. Michael Clare, welcome back.
4: A pleasure always to talk with you.
1: Well, Trump may deny that climate change is real, but for the Pentagon, that's not debatable. In 2015, they reported to Congress that, quote, climate change is an urgent and growing threat to our national security. Our military have already been mobilized to deal with the effects of climate change. Remind us about the Pentagon's response to the hurricanes in the fall of 2017, those mega storms that hit eastern Texas, southern Florida, and virtually all of Puerto Rico.
4: There we're referring to hurricanes in order. First, Hurricane Harvey that struck Houston in late August 2017. Then along came Irma, which devastated the Caribbean and then southern Florida. And then most devastating, Maria, which utterly crushed Puerto Rico. And the damage still hasn't been fully repaired in Puerto Rico as a result of Hurricane Maria. Though those storms overwhelm the capacity of local authorities to deal with them And the governors in each of those states and the Commonwealth mobilized all of their National Guard, and even that wasn't enough. So the Department of Defense mobilized tens of thousands of active-duty soldiers as well to provide emergency relief, including an aircraft carrier battle group out of Norfolk, Virginia, and dozens of planes, helicopters, ships, everything they could find to help local authorities deal with the situation. And this is exactly what the U.S. military perceives is what they're going to see more of in the future.
1: When and where did the Pentagon first decide it had to start planning to make disaster recovery part of its mission?
4: This began in the first decade of the 21st century when the intelligence community, began to consider the impact of climate change on national security. So the National Intelligence Council, an arm of the CIA responsible for future projections, published a study in 2008, the very first of its kind, on the national security implications of climate change. And this report showed that as global temperatures increase, Supplies of water and food will diminish in many parts of the world, and this could spark revolts in poor resource-deprived countries, leading to state collapse, mass migrations, and a lot of global chaos that would result in demands for U.S. military intervention. So ever since then, the U.S. military has been thinking about the likelihood that climate change will increase its responsibilities for emergency response
1: abroad. And the response that they have contemplated you report includes the potential to assume key governmental functions by our military after complex catastrophes, possibly even for an extended period of time. That's something we haven't seen before
4: certainly not something that that we've seen in in modern times by the U.S. military. And when you speak of these complex catastrophes, John, this this is something that first uh, came up following uh, Superstorm Sandy in New York City, in the metropolitan area, when, when the transportation system and power collapsed throughout the metropolitan area and the Department of Defense was called in to help restore power and transportation lines throughout the region. In the wake of that, the military realized that this may be a harbinger of what they'll face in the future, and so they began planning for what they call complex catastrophes where local authorities' systems might collapse, and the military would have to play the role of government in places, not only abroad, but in the United States as well.
1: The activities of soldiers and sailors in these situations are not just helping old people get to the local shelter. You report there are hazards and dangers to the soldiers and sailors who are assigned to some of this duty.
4: Absolutely. Uh, when when you look at overseas operations like those that Could occur in places like Somalia or Mali, other parts of the Sahel region of Africa, where terrorist organizations have exploited the chaos and the divisions that have occurred in the wake of severe climate disasters. So any U.S. troops sent to help restore order in those areas will be exposed to uh, the risk of terrorist attack. And we've seen that already in those areas. And the fear is this could grow much worse. Domestically speaking, when you look at some of the catastrophes that have occurred and might occur, dangers arise from the chemicals and poisons that they may be forced to Uh, Expose themselves to. This occurred in Houston when American troops were sent into the Houston area following Hurricane Harvey to help rescue people. The water that covered much of Houston was full of toxic petrochemicals from uh, oil facilities that were flooded and burned.
1: We're talking here about the military helping civilians, but of course the military has its own bases all over the world, many of which are Vulnerable to the same superstorms we've been talking about. Surely the Pentagon has thought about that.
4: Absolutely, John. And this is one of the primary reasons that the U.S. military continues to speak about the threat of climate change, even though President Trump refuses to admit that there's a problem at all. It's because the military faces a climate change threat to their own bases. And they see that this threat is growing, and they realize it's going to impair their ability to carry out their primary duties, which is to defend the nation. They particularly worry about naval and air bases on the eastern seacoast of the United States. Many of these facilities, like uh, Naval Station Norfolk in Norfolk, Virginia, are pretty much at sea level. And with sea levels rising due to climate change, many of these bases can expect to be inundated whenever there's a very high tide, or certainly in, in, in any future hurricanes or severe storms. So, climate change is going to pose a very severe threat to the viability of many of the military's bases in the United States.
1: And, of course, our military, I am told, is the world's biggest consumer of fossil fuels. Is there any talk at the Pentagon about switching to renewables?
4: Oh, yes. Uh, The Pentagon began this conversion from fossil fuels to renewables as early as 2010 after the senior leadership became aware of the dangerous implications of climate change to global stability and they began then a program of reducing reliance on fossil fuels for heating and power on domestic U.S. bases. So each of the armed services are on track to substantially reduce their consumption of fossil fuels and replace them with renewable energy. Some bases are expected to be net zero in the coming years, totally self sufficient from renewables.
1: Michael Clare, his new book is All Hell Breaking Loose The Pentagon's Perspective on Climate Change. You can read excerpts at thenation.com and at Tom Dispatch. Thank you, Michael.
4: My pleasure to talk with you, John, always.
1: Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton, Alan Minsky is our senior producer, Frank Reynolds is our executive producer, Annie Shields is the Nation's engagement editor, DD Guttenplan is editor of The Nation, Katrina Vandenhouvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com/podcastsubscribe. With this special discount for start making sense listeners. You can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com. And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently.